you should see a picture of, of the Israelites mourning Joshua after his death. And now that he's died, the Israelites, they have no leader. It's, he didn't select a successor. So you'd think that Phineas, the high priest, might be the logical candidate. But we don't actually hear from him again until nearly the end of the book. So the Israelites are rudderless and they begin to disintegrate rather quickly. Judges chapter two tells us that after Joshua dies and the generation that knew him also dies, a new generation rises up that doesn't know the Lord or what the Lord has done for Israel. Isn't that pitiful? Like what happened to telling your children the stories every day as you walk and as you lie down? What happened to putting reminders on your arms and foreheads and clothing? How could they forget the Lord? It says the Israelites intermarry with the pagan nations and start worshiping the gods of all the people around them, especially Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal we've already met. His name literally means Lord and Master. He's a storm god riding the clouds. He's also son of El. Yep, same word El that is used for Yahweh. El is just a word meaning greatest God. It refers to the God at the top of the pantheon. So they're back in golden calf mode, worshiping gods who are no more than a pale reflection of Yahweh. Why are they doing this? Why would they trade Yahweh for this? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that a lesser God can be controlled. A lesser God makes no demand that you be separate from everyone else. If you worship an idol, you will no longer be made fun of or feel different. And that's a powerful thing. Isolation and rejection are some of our instinctive, most severe forms of punishment. The draw to be like everyone else is too much for the Israelites. And on top of that, there's sex. The worship of Baal involves temple prostitutes. Not always, of course, but sex is a significant part of idol worship in Canaan. El has a consort named Asherah, and Baal has a consort named Ashtoreth. Worship sites devoted to these consorts are characterized by poles, sort of like we'd think of a totem pole. I, I can't help it, but the, what I think of is pole dancing. I mean, it's just, I, I see these poles and it reminds me that they're associated with these female goddesses. So Ashtoreth is a famous goddess in the region, the goddess of war and fertility. She goes by a lot of names. You're going to recognize some of them. Have you heard of Ishtar, Aphrodite, Venus? These are all names for this exact goddess. Her worship is lascivious and the Israelites cannot resist it. This of course strikes Yahweh with grief. Israel is essentially his wife and they are prostituting themselves figuratively and literally to these so-called other gods. And Yahweh boils with hurt and anger. What more must he do to get this stiff-necked people to understand how foolish they're being? And so it says Yahweh steps out of the way. He stops protecting them. 
and lets them suffer the natural consequences of their choices. In his anger, he hands them over to raiders who plunder them. They're no longer able to resist their enemies. This is not spite. This is God still trying to get their attention. They only run to him when they're in dire straits. In so much trouble, they have to admit their idols are worthless. And their very instinct of running to God at such a time is itself a witness that they know better than to worship these idols. The whole thing is a terrible mess. It's helpful to think of the books, book of Judges as the book of superheroes. The Israelites don't have a real leader anymore, but when they cry out to God, God raises some spectacular heroes to save them from annihilation. These heroes are called judges, but it really helps to substitute the word hero as you read. In chapter two, the author gives the same introduction I'm giving you, and he says, no matter how spectacularly the Lord saves the Israelites, as soon as they're safe, they go right back to worshiping idols, and the cycle starts all over again. Worship idols, forsake the Lord, get in terrible trouble because the Lord is not defending them anymore, cry out to the Lord, the Lord has compassion on them, the Lord raises up a hero to save them, and everything's great for a little while, but the hero eventually dies and Israelites go back to worshiping idols. Rinse and repeat over and over and over again. And so the Lord gives up on giving them the promised land. I mean, what's the point of driving out the nations before them anymore? Instead, the Lord says, I'm leaving these other nations. So you will have to make a choice whether to worship idols or worship me. Like, remember, choose this day whom you will serve, right? The first hero arises when Israel is enslaved by the king of northern Aram, up near Mesopotamia. They're enslaved for eight years, but when they finally cry out to the Lord, Othniel rises up and overpowers the king of northern Aram. Yes, this is the same Othniel we met last time. Caleb's nephew, the defeater of giants. Othniel is Israel's first hero, and under him, Israel has peace for 40 years. But after Othniel dies, the Israelites go right back to their idol worship, and the Lord steps back once more. This time, it's Eglon, king of Moab, who joins with the Ammonites, they're east of the Jordan, and those dreaded Amalekites in the south, that same nation that attacked the Israelites as they came out from Egypt, the same nation the Lord told them to be sure and defeat and whom Israel still has not conquered. Notice that even though Moab is related to the Israelites through Esau and Moab has so far been protected by God, they have by now stood in the Israelites' way, attacked them, and now joined the Amalekites. So God loses patience with the Moabites. They have become enemies of God. This terrible alliance is too much for the Israelites, and they become subject to Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a man named Ehud to serve them. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. 
always pay attention to the tribe a hero comes from. That information is in there for a reason. Sometimes it just gives you a hint as to the geography involved, but sometimes it's a hint as to the hero's spiritual lineage. Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you look in your study guide at the reference table for the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll see that Benjamin's blessing was to be, quote, a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder, end quote. The men of the tribe of Benjamin were known as fierce warriors. Your Bible may say that Ehud was left-handed. Now that's a funny detail to stick in there. Like, who cares? Well, Everett Fox notes that this can also mean a man restricted in his right hand, which may indicate the training he's undergone. He may have bound his right hand so he could learn to be ambidextrous in battle. Cool, huh? So here's the necessary disclaimer. The book of Judges, the book of heroes, is the most clear picture we have of the brutality and barbarity of the Canaanite culture. This book is terrifying. This book is graphic. This book is hard to take. It is almost never preached or taught except for a few sanitized excerpts. I'm going to give it to you unadulterated and raw with no apologies, but with lots of explanation, of course. You will be horrified, certainly with the Israelites and possibly with God. As we go into it, therefore, I want to remind you that God meets us where we are. He speaks to us in a language we can understand. And so when he's dealing with barbaric people in a cruel culture, he interacts with them in ways they can hear and interpret rightly. The specific response of God to these people does not define God. It is a reflection of the people. We have the advantage of a much larger view. We have the arc of God across history. We have seen God responding to people in other contexts. And God responds differently in those other contexts, right? And this gives us a more rounded view of God than the author of Judges had. And we have Jesus to give us an even clearer view. So don't get hung up in this ancient barbaric view and interpretation of God and of what God might be like and of what God might have said. This is a pretty flat view that has a lot more to do with who they were than who God is. Remember the lens they're using as we read. To get past their lens, we must use the tools in our backpack. We have to remember to look for the direction God is moving the people. First, he tries to move them from idols to him. Judges, just like the Torah and Joshua, Judges reveals God's infinite patience, his willingness to keep trying over and over and over to bless his people. The stories in Judges will reveal God's compassion and how he never turns a deaf ear when his people fall into a pit of their own making. And knowing Jesus, we know that God is always moving us towards peace, compassion, justice, and loving our enemies, not annihilating them. 
we know that over time, God works to teach his people a better way to live. God works to teach us what his kingdom is like, like what it's like to live where he is king. The Hebrew Bible reveals the depth of God's love and patience and mercy and compassion, even towards a willful, stubborn people. Later in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets will reveal what God's kingdom will look like. And it's a kingdom of peace where no one harms anyone else. And in the New Testament, Jesus will reveal how we can live in that kingdom now, even here on earth. Here's an example of God's arc towards peace that will come up later in the Hebrew Bible. It happens when King David wants to build a permanent temple for God. David says to his son, Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word of the Lord came to me. The Lord said, you are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you, son, Solomon, will be a man of peace and rest, and you will be the one who will build a house for the Lord. So don't give up on God. Don't lose sight of where God is heading. God is a God of peace. He is beckoning Israel to peace. He has promised them peace, and he will achieve peace. But they aren't listening They're running after those Canaanite idols as fast as they can, and God has to holler at them to get their attention. These stories in the book of Judges are violent because the people are violent, not because God is violent. So as we read these horrible barbaric stories in Judges, lift up your head and remember where God is going with all this. Even in Judges, even in these awful stories, God is to be found. Actually, some of the bedrock of my own faith is rooted in this book. These stories are about God being fully present in our time of greatest need. These stories are about God adapting to us and speaking to us in whatever way we can hear him. So we're about to dive into the cesspool of the Bible. The next story is typical. If you flinch at the word shit, then gird yourself because there's a lot of shit in this story and there's a lot of sex in the story after that. And I'm not going to pull any punches. You may hear the Bible in ways you've never heard it before, but stick with it. It's worth it. The first story is sort of a Dudley Do-Right Snidely Whiplash drama. Like all of these hero stories, it's meant to be told out loud. It's meant to be acted out in the way a good storyteller acts out their tale to enthrall the listener. And many of these stories are intended for the rough and hardened warrior. This is entertainment around the campfire. So get ready to cheer for the hero, Ehud, and to boo and hiss at the villain, King Eglon of Moab. King Eglon is fat. So there are a ton of fat jokes in here, and the story is full of bathroom humor. So get your popcorn ready to throw at the villain. The stage is set and the curtain rises. 
It's been 18 years of slavery under King Eglon of Moab. As is always required, the Israelites send their annual tribute, meaning heavy taxes, to King Eglon in care of the great warrior Ehud of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Ehud has a secret plan. He fashions a large dagger and straps it to his right thigh underneath his clothing. Now, back then, swords were curved. You wouldn't find them underneath clothing. They're more like scimitars. But he he makes this kind of longish longish dagger or short sword, however you want to say it, but it's straight so he can strap it to his thigh. And he has got, the guards don't search his right thigh because any hidden weapon would normally be on the left thigh where a right-handed man could reach it quickly. But Ehud can fight with his left hand, so he straps it to his right thigh. Ehud and his men present the tribute to the extremely fat King Eglon. Then he and his men make their way back home. But Ehud now knows the guards don't check the right thigh. And he knows now how to sneak a weapon into King Eglon's presence. As Ehud and his men approach Gilgal, Ehud sends his men on home. He's coming up with a plan to assassinate King Eglon, but he's going to have to do it on his own. First, Ehud makes a point of visiting a place famous for idol worship and oracles, then doubles back to Moab. When Ehud arrives in Moab, he finds King Eglon in the penthouse of his palace. Ehud says, I have a secret message from the gods for you, O king. Probably having been told by his spies that Ehud has indeed been to the oracle near Gilgal, King Eglon eagerly sends his attendants away. When they're alone, the fat king creaks to his feet and draws near to Ehud to hear this secret message. Ehud draws his dagger and plunges it into King Eglon. Yay, throw your popcorn. As Ehud plunges the dagger into the fat king, you holler, how fat was he? He was so fat, the dagger plunged all the way up to the hilt and the king keeled over dead. You holler, how dead was he? He was so dead, the shit fell out of him. And Ehud escapes out the window. After a while, the king's servants return. But finding the door locked and smelling the stink, they say, oh, he must be taking a shit. And they wait. And they wait. And they get more and more embarrassed as they wait. Finally, they figure even King Eglon can't have that much shit in him. Cue uproarious laughter from the audience. I mean, there's full of shit and then there's full of shit. And so they unlock the door and find the king dead on the floor. Yay, throw popcorn at the bad king. By the time those dumb Moabites figure it out, Ehud has escaped to Israel. He blows a ram's horn to muster the warriors and they storm Moab. The Israelite warriors defeat 10,000 Moabite warriors, including, it says, even the stout ones, yuck, yuck. That's a pun in Hebrew, just like it is in English. Another fat joke. 
the, cl- the crowd laughs uproariously. And that day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. See what I mean about the earthiness of these stories? Like gross. But you can see the appeal to the warriors sitting around the campfire. Our own modern movies are just as graphic and just as violent and just as effective at getting the point across. These stories are entertainment with a purpose. These are the stories of the heroes God raises up to save his people, even when they do not deserve it. They are saved simply because they are God's people. And that is the overarching message of this book and the reason these stories are important enough to be preserved and passed down to us. The next hero is Shamgar, who strikes down 600 Philistines and saves Israel. He apparently does this sometime during Ehud's lifetime, but then Ehud dies and, you guessed it, Israel once again does what is evil. And once more, the Lord lets them lie in the bed they have made. This time, the enemy who arises is Shabim, king of Hazor, in the northern part of Canaan. His general, Sisera, comes against Israel with 900 ironclad chariots and conquers them. The Israelites are cruelly oppressed for 20 years. Then God raises up a prophet, a woman named Deborah. She's a married woman. You'd think she'd be at home tending the kids, but this is another one of those stories where a woman changes the course of history. The Bible is full of strong women, full of women whose names and deeds are remembered. In the Hebrew Bible, women not only speak, they're chosen by God to lead nations and change destinies. Women like Miriam and Deborah, they not only teach men, they judge them. Deborah holds court down near Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And one day she sends for the mighty warrior Barak, way up from the land of Naphtali, near Galilee. Barak's name means lightning. Deborah has devised a battle strategy for freeing Israel from King Jabin and his general Sisera. The reason she's called for Barak is because Jabin rules from his gigantic city, Hazor, up near where Barak lives. Hazor is the biggest city in all of ancient Israel, covering something like 200 acres with a population of around 20,000 people, according to some sources. And here's that same northern area, but zoomed in on a topographical map. There's the Sea of Galilee in the upper right corner and Hazor just north of it. And notice what else is on this map, the Jezreel Valley and Megiddo. This is the place where big battles are fought. So here's Deborah's plan. She's going to station Barak and his army up on Mount Tabor here. Then she's going to lure Sisera and his armies into the Jezreel Valley over towards the Kishon River here. Then Barak will sweep down on them from Mount Tabor and will destroy them because the Lord is giving them into the hands of the Israelites. And Barak says, 
okay, that sounds like a plan, but I'll only do it if you go with me. He wants to be sure that God is going to fight for him. Sisera is a fearsome general, and the only way Barak and his volunteer army with no chariots at all can win is if God enters the battle. Deborah must be there to give the men her assurance that God is on their side. And Deborah says, I will be there, Barak, but know that the glory in this battle will not go to you, but to a woman. And so they execute the plan. It doesn't say exactly how Deborah lured Sisera to the Kishon River, but she does it. And Barak storms down from Mount Tabor and the Lord routs Sisera and his armies and his mighty chariots so badly that Sisera abandons his chariot and flees on foot. Then comes one of the strangest and most uncomfortable stories in the Bible. Sisera flees to a friendly area, of course, and comes to the tent of a woman named Yael. Yael beckons to Sisera to come into her tent quickly. Now, this is unheard of. Yael is a married woman. Friendly or not, a married woman would never, ever invite a man who is not her husband into her tent. And her husband is clearly away from home in this story. From this point on, the imagery in the story is overtly sexual. Your Bible most likely has sanitized and glossed over the language, but I want you to understand how earthy and sexual and messy and violent these stories actually are. Remember, these are hero stories and they're catering to the warrior community. So there's going to be sex involved. So as I tell you the story, I want you to watch for the sexual overtones and double entendres. The account of this incident is in two places here in Judges. First, it's in the storytelling itself, and then it's memorialized in Deborah's victory song. You have to read both parts together and blend them to get the whole story. And of course, the details are somewhat different in the two versions. So Sisera stumbles into Jael's tent and she puts a coverlet over him, meaning she puts him in bed. He says, I'm thirsty, Jael, give me some water. But instead she gives him milk. Think about where milk comes from. Did she run out and milk a goat instead of bringing him water? unlikely in my estimation. I think this is a sexual reference. It says she brings it to him in a magnificent bowl fit for a prince. It says she opens a skin bottle and gives him milk to drink. And then it says she covers him. This is not necessarily putting a coverlet over him. The word can mean to conceal, but in this particular form of the word, it can also mean to clothe. All of this imagery is overtly sexual and is in the context of Sisera being in her tent alone with her. Yael waits until Sisera falls asleep exhausted. Then she reaches out her left hand and grabs a tent peg. And with her right hand, she grabs a hammer, which to me, this just envisions her holding very still, reaching out with her left, grabbing the tent peg, reaching out with her right grabbing the hammer, trying not to move. And she pounds the peg through Sisera's temple so hard that she pins him to the ground, killing him instantly. Your Bible 
probably says that he sank, that he fell dead at her feet. That's in chapter five, verse 27. But think about that for a minute. That can't be the right translation. If she pins his head to the ground with a tent stake, he can't sink afterwards. His head has to already be on the ground. So that translation is faulty. The words have been sanitized. What this actually says is that he sank between her legs. Where he crouched, he fell dead. Um, yep, I expect the soldiers get the picture of what was going on here and how he happened to fall asleep between her legs. Deborah's victory song ends with a vignette in which Cicero's mother watches out the window for him, wondering what is taking him so long. And the women with her say, oh, we're sure he's just taking time dividing the spoils. Every man taking a girl or two, literally it says taking a womb or two, and taking richly embroidered cloth for himself and for you. See how carefully crafted these stories are? See the echo of the magnificent bowl here in the magnificently embroidered cloth? See the echoes of Yael's seduction of Sisera and the wombs being taken in rape? This story is all about justice, poetic justice. As raw as the imagery is, it is powerful. It is intended to be powerful. It is intended to evoke a strong sense of God's power on behalf of Israel, on behalf of all who are degraded by the powerful. Judges is full of the images of war. These are images the Israelite warriors are familiar with, conquest, plundering, and rape. But God turns the whole scenario upside down. That's the point of the stories. That's why they're in here. These are stories of God's ability to work even through the warped and the weak to achieve victory over the mightiest of warriors and kings. We are familiar with Jesus' stories in the New Testament about the upside down kingdom of God. But did you realize that Jesus' message should have been neither new nor revolutionary to the Jews? The Hebrew Bible is filled with stories of the upside-down kingdom, where the last are first and the weak overcome the powerful. We'll talk about that more in our small groups today. So uh, this whole um, discussion was really about uh, trying to connect the themes that we tend to be very familiar with in the New Testament about the you know, upside down kingdom of God with things we've already covered in this, just this first, you know, six or seven books of the Hebrew Bible um, and connecting those themes. So the first one that I had put on the uh, discussion table um, was the song of Mary, where she just praises the Lord for what he's doing with Jesus and uh, about how this is, this is the Lord actually coming to tear down the powerful and raise up the weak and for justice to roll down like a river, like it says um, in the Hebrew Bible. We haven't got to that part yet. And, um, and, and that New Testament theme we see all over the, the Hebrew Bible. But, you know, the one that comes immediately to mind is how the Lord 
you know, brought Pharaoh to his knees in rescuing the Israelites. So let's kind of go through quickly through the, through the uh, table. The next example for or theme that I was raising from um, the New Testament was Pentecost, where at Pentecost, people from were in town in Jerusalem for a, a big festival and and they were from all over the Mediterranean region all over the known world kind of thing to them at what they would call the world and and the holy spirit fell on the disciples and they started speaking in tongues what we call speaking in tongues they were praising the lord in languages they didn't even understand. And as a result, the Holy Spirit was speaking directly to the people in the in their own native languages. It was an amazing miracle. And I the question was, where have we seen that theme of the Lord being able to speak with that kind of power through someone who can't do it themselves? Where did we see that already in the Hebrew Bible? Moses. Moses. Yes. And Aaron, he raised up Aaron too, remember? Um, and and the, the next example was children being given to the elderly. And I picked out of the New Testament one that would have just come out of the Christmas season that we just went through, where, where the uh, angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and um, told him his wife Elizabeth was going to have a baby, even though the two of them were way past childbearing age. And we're going to see this theme lots of times in the Bible as we go through. But where have we already seen it? Abraham and Sarah. Sarah. That's right. So the next one was moving mountains, that famous verse in Mark um, where, where Jesus says, you know, it's after they've come out um, and and the uh, disciples are astounded that the the olive tree, the little fig tree, or that that the plant that um, Jesus had cursed because it didn't have figs on it. A couple of days ago, they come back by it and it's like all withered and dead, and and um, and they're astounded. And Jesus says, "Just have faith. God is here. God is going to do." whatever you ask God to do for you. Um, and um, there's a lot of examples. What did y'all come up with for that one? Well, the one you hinted was Jericho. <laughs> it was, it was. Did you come up with any others? I, I did, but I think that I interpreted, and it, the English is thing, some of your topics, not maybe as more literal, but more figurative, um, in some of them that I found, and I chose to look at like Goliath as a giant. Um, and I know that that's not, you know, like what you when you said, you just mentioned something oh, that that dividing the water, dividing of the waters multiple times. Um, yes. Uh, you know, defeating uh, the pe- people in the promised land, uh, um, Nephilim. Yes, the, the Nephilim. That's uh, right. Maybe. maybe I don't know, maybe parting of the Red Sea, that might be. Absolutely. Yeah, like what good is it going to do to pull out your, and how about Moses at the burning bush and God says, throw it down and it's a snake and he says, pick it up by the tail. How's that? (laughs) Yeah, all Mm -hmm. these things we should, if it's a theme, if it's important, 
if it is part of who God is, you will see it over and over and over and over and over again from the beginning of the Hebrew Bible to the end of the New Testament. Look for those. Don't cherry pick verses and don't let other people cherry pick verses. And anytime somebody throws a verse at you and says, this is what God says, you pull that out of the air and you check it up against these themes that you know about who God is. We are laying down the strata layer by layer by layer of a mountain. All right. That is what he brought out on that one that um, God can do anything. Yes. And, you know, we talked about how whatever we're going through, God can get us through it. Absolutely. And in today's, we also talked about the fact that in today's, what's going on in the world, in the United States especially, that this was a very important thing to remember. Yes, absolutely. And, and here's, let's go to the next one. It was about leading people astray and, and saying it would be better to be drowned. I think these are the words of Jesus than to cause those who believe in me, Jesus, to go astray. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to go through life with just one hand than to go to hell with two. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to keep them both on your way to hell. Now, this is all figurative language that, that Jesus is using, but where have we seen this already in our study? Oh. So, well, in our study, I, well, you I just say in our study, you I, can go hey, further. I, I had a, we had a Sunday school class one time about, about lead astray. Um, when you're talking about a theme, and there's like over 25 instances in the Bible where even things like the shepherd leading the sheep in the wrong directions where they fall off the mountains or lead astray is all over the Bible. Yes. Lead astray is all over the Bible. There's like over 25 instances in it. Yes. Yes. I said Isaiah 30, uh, where you have an obstinate nation. Yes. And then the consequences of that. Yes. Yes. And the example you gave us of um, Cora and the the people that were uprising against the set ways of giving the offerings and whatnot, and you know we can do it ourselves. And the earth opened and swallowed them up. Yes. And um, we also talked about um, just in passing about um, Aiken. When yes. you know he kept part of the and yes, kept a, part of the booty from Jericho. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And it's like it's a cleansing, and and God, um, the way I think of it is that um, God will cut off the parts, the people, whatever that are contrary to what He wants in our lives or in you know what. What God wants, God's will, um, believing in Jesus, stuff like that. If if somebody is leading people astray from that or whatever, God's going to cut them off if we don't. You remember you remember the um, slide in the in the lesson today that had the pointing hands, and mm-hmm. and how it had a, a hand pointing to God, 
first mm -hmm. and then a hand pointing to peace after that. What this is yeah, talking and I, about is that first hand. It's talking about the most important thing is that we point people to God and God gets really uh, violent in a sense uh, when we start pointing people elsewhere and calling it God. And Barb, I heard you. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think also he wants us to be obedient. And that that and our be obedience is focusing on him. So you know we're supposed to be obedient to him, and not to anything else. That's exactly right. Um, and and it helps, I think, to to separate those two pointing hands because we get them muddled up. So when you come to something and you're like, "Why did God do that?" and "Why did He get so upset about that?" Think about which of those pointing hands it's talking about. Is it something that's happened that is causing people to be pointed away from God? That's where all the, the really violent stuff has. Or is it something that's pointing where God is trying to teach people about justice or peace or generosity or whatever? The reaction tends to be lesser when we miss some of those things, because those are part of our maturing process. We're still in God. We're still with God. We're still pointing to God. We're still in community. So it helps me to kind of evaluate um, what's happening in terms of those two, you know, which part of, which stage are we in there? And All right. Which, which, which did you say the other was pointing to? Peace. Oh, that's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Gail, I like what you said. You could say anything there. I heard you, Pat. Gail, I like how you, yeah, where, um, is it, is it God that you're looking at or is it looking, are we looking at the reactions of the people that he's dealing with? Mm -hmm. It different reactions. That was, to me, that was very instrumental. That made sense to me. Yeah. Because you, you see the difference, if you will, of the justice of God based on how he's reacting to the wickedness of men. Yes. And to me, that was very helpful. Thank you. I like yeah. That. yeah. So hopefully these for are me, all, uh -huh. I'm sorry. I was gonna say for oh. me in dealing with the LBGTQ community and how many people speak the truth in love, <clears throat> I'm uh -huh. using that facetiously and a result of what they're doing turns people away from God. It doesn't draw them to God. And I think those people are going to suffer horrible consequences for it. Well, certainly the body of Christ certainly suffers right. horrible consequences for it, for it, right? Well, they think they're doing the right thing and they think they're, in, but, oh. Yeah. And, and go ahead. No, just read this. I, I was reading that this morning. The story of Sorry, Pat. Reference. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. No, say it again. I missed part of it. Yeah. Uh, okay. In my studies this morning, my quiet times this morning, I was reading where Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, where Lot was debased and so forth. And the angels came and they tried to pull the angels out. And he said, no, take my two virgin daughters instead, which says a lot about him as a father or not. But, you know, it goes on to say a very wicked and debased effort that these guys were going toward doing towards the, the angels. And so, Again, I don't want to get off on a segue because I know that's not what you want to do. But, you know, how do you how do you reconcile that scripture with being an LBGTQ kind of a person when God yes. says it's wicked and it's debased? And I'll stop there because I know. We
that subject up. Yes, and I don't know if you've had a chance to go back and listen to that particular last video um, where we actually cover Sodom and Gomorrah. Do, have mm -hmm. you had a chance to do that one? No, we okay. will. Thank you. I do. Yeah, start with Genesis 1, okay. do Genesis 1 and 2, and then skip to the Sodom and Gomorrah one. And I think that may give you some perspective on that. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you, Gary. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the next one is honor those who cannot repay you. This is out of Luke. And it said, and, and and this is Jesus again saying, so when you give a party, don't invite your friends and the rich neighbors and the your business associates. Invite the people you don't know. Invite the strangers. Invite the people who are not in your immediate circle. The people who are not like you. The people who I are don't poor. See that on my chart. Pardon? I didn't see that on my chart. Oh, okay. It's on page two. There were two pages, so you might not have printed the second page. And and so uh, uh, invite the poor and the ill because they oh. cannot repay you. You know. So where do where have we seen that so far in our studies? The year of jubilee, the canceling of debts. Sorry. That's, yeah. yeah. That's good. And also the seventh year was as, uh, every seventh year, not the year of jubilee was every 50 years, but every seventh year they were to free slaves and, and forgive debts. And it was kind of a mini jubilee. Forgive debt. mm -hmm. Mini jubilee. But the, the big thing is and those were all the hows, the what that God told them was the, if you do these things, there will be no poor among you and there should be no poor among you. We had discussed that it's to give generously and to pay it forward. And I had an example, I got cut off at leaving the group, but I was telling a story about, um, I have a college student and we bought him a very generous cafeteria plan because he has some food challenges and we wanted him to have options living in the dorm. Well, after COVID, they sent everybody home. They don't refund the, dorm, the cafeteria plan, but they let it carry over to the semester. He doesn't eat in the cafeteria because he had an experience where he ate something that was that, bad, for, bad him. for him. So instead what he did was took all his friends and treated them <laughs> to his cafeteria plan. And he was frustrated that they stood him up the last day because he still had $50 to give. Isn't that just like, like the story of the, of the king, king who gives a banquet and nobody will come? <laughs> yeah. So then he invites the strangers and yeah. people out on the street. Considering he only had $50 left to give, he did a pretty good job of sharing. <laughs> <laughs> he did great. And speaking of um, I, the, something in what you said reminded me that Lumar texted me that her um, Zoom failed and she dropped out of the call. So she wanted to let her group know that it wasn't anything they said. <laughs> it, was, it, was just her, it was just her technology is not working today so then the last the good samaritan is he can't be repaid yes exactly who he is. exactly he gave his credit card to the innkeeper 
So, so the, the last part on that table was that there was a thing about what others can you think of? Did you guys come up with some other examples of thing, themes that we're seeing already in the Hebrew Bible that, that we see also in the New Testament? They're, they're important, that important. I said the Jesus rule number two, love your neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Good one. Oh, that's a good one. Any others? I was sitting here working on it while you guys were too. And I thought of, um, what about remember me every time you eat this bread and drink this wine? And what we see about the Lord saying, put reminders about me everywhere. So you remember me all day long. Talk about me constantly. I am present. Um, one of the stories that I came up with, we didn't get this far in our group. We ended on that last question, but um, one of the stories that I thought about that's in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is um, when the rulers tried to kill all the babies that were born after, about the time that Jesus was born, ah, yeah. trying to get rid of the Messiah, and then where the Pharaoh was throwing all the baby boys into um, the Nile to let the crocodiles eat them. And in both of those stories, the midwives refused to do what the, what the ruler told them to do. The midwives were righteous and helped hide babies and, you know, didn't, were not throwing the, the babies if they could, they were avoiding throwing the babies into the Nile and um, that um, God always has a righteous um, sector of people for lack of a, you know, there's always that little core of people who want to do the right thing and are going to do the right thing, no matter what the law says or what, you know, that's a great segue Shirley into the, the next point I wanted to, to bring to you guys is, is that we, what this exercise did is link the, the Hebrew Bible with the New Testament, important themes, the, the real foundational part of who God is in relation to us. And what you bring up is the third link in the chain, which is where we see this happening in real life, in mm -hmm. our lives. This is, this is the people who hid the Jews during the Holocaust. These are the people that we should be in the world today. This, this is what to look for. This is how to know what to do and where to go. So the very, we're way over time. So don't feel bad if you need to hop off. But the very last question was, was completely, pretty much completely unrelated. But I just said, you know, I think that our Bibles sanitize the language a lot. For one thing, they're written by committee. And you know that anything written by committee ends up losing personality, right? Um, but, but beyond that, um, that, we've got this whole Puritan ethic going on. <laughs> and so, so we don't, um, the flavor of these stories doesn't come through 
when we're reading it, the way it's translated, uh, the way it's been presented, the, the words that they choose. It's not that they don't translate it wrong. They choose words that water it down. Um, they're, they're possible words, but they definitely are losing the flavor. And so my question to you for just general thinking is, what does that do if we sanitize the Bible? Is it important? Does it matter or does it not matter at all? Well, I think that it's important not to sanitize because, um, you know, there are people who don't want to read the Old Testament because they say, oh, no, it's so violent and the God I believe in doesn't do that. Well, the thing is, is there are consequences, and we have a responsibility, we have certain responsibilities and we have accountability involved when um, we believe, when we are Christians or when we are Christ followers. And not that necessarily that these kinds of things are going to happen, but there are, you know, it's, it's relatable to today's world. And um, it's just like we, we, we talk about in school, they tend to sanitize history sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially in this day of, of um, you know, supporting, you know, racial justice, that lots of times the things that are need to be told aren't there. And if we're not aware of them, then we can't, there's nothing we can do about them either. And we need to understand that it's up to us, you know, that God and that God will lead us through this. I, I find that in relation to history, that sanitizing things often allows people to misconstrue the reality. We have read in history books where they said that slavery was a good thing because it helped the Black people. But if you had looked at the raw truth, we have seen um, where spinning a connotation on things in history where they've said they men were protecting the women, but the truth is there was violent oppression you know, um, so I think that when you sanitize things, you, I mean, think about the actual, you know, cleaning up the germs. If you don't look at the raw germ and the infection, you don't learn the truth. You lean yourself open to be misconstrued and for inappropriate positive connotations to be spun on things. Yeah. Yeah. They can't make it pretty. Ugliness exists. And with the reference to germs, if you don't look at the actual germ, there's no way you can come up with an with a remedy for it or an antidote or a vaccine. You have to actually look at what's what's caused this. And I'm afraid that we Um, the core cause. Exactly. And I think that by sanitizing it, we we make it where we don't recognize the same situation Mm -hmm. when it happens to us. Because it doesn't look mm-hmm. the same. And it's I always and quantitatively expressed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I also think that we make the Bible unreal. So <laughs> that real people don't recognize themselves in these stories. And in the stories we've read so far, I can see myself all over the place in here. You know, I can see the world in here. I can see this happening. Um, I understand, but but people think they have to be perfect in order to be pleasing to God. I think it also um, causes unrealistic standards and judgments 
because, um, I mean, if you think about the story you did today um, about, and shoot, I forgot her name already, but. Yael? Yeah, Deborah. With the, with oh, the, Deborah. the, the prostitute. No, the one that killed the guy with the, in this tent with the yeah, sex. Her name was Yael or Jael. Yael, yeah. Okay. Um, like you look at that story and, um, you know, it's like, well, that doesn't seem very um, um, Christian. I'll use, even though it was Old Testament, I'll use that word to, for her to have enticed him and done the things she did. And, you know, and you're like, um, something's, and, you know, if you look at the story, Rahab the harlot, yeah. I mean, she was a prostitute and God used her. And people are like, um, you, you know, that Puritanism, that sex is bad. And, you know, it, I think it leads people down a path of judgment. It does. And, and Yael was using the only tool she had, you know, um, it, it, it's a very different. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at Ross's comment. It's a very different take on um, uh, how people can respond to God, right? Um, it's, it's worth thinking about. Rhonda, did you have something? No, I was just reading the comment and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should have Game, Game of Thrones to my watch list because I have no clue what the well, I, I keep talking about it because it's very barbaric and very violent and the, the books are awesome, but the, the, the TV... Don't forget about the sex. Yeah, uh, and the sex. <laughs> sex. But and I, I personally loved the series, but but it was definitely violent. And, and, the books and, or it, movies or a TV show. I see, I, I'm totally it, clueless. But it's, anyway, a, it's, a, it, it's a series, like on a subscription channel, you know, and it's done. Oh, okay. they, finished it. they finished it. So you can watch, you can watch the whole thing now, but um and, and honestly i only watched like the last season or two i didn't watch the whole thing because oh, oh you just, missed the good parts ross i was oh, like well. how did it even make sense then <laughs> yeah yeah exactly I, yeah i know i know yeah exactly you know, definitely watch it from the beginning but, but oh, okay yeah so it's it's i loved it because it's a it's a good story yeah. um you do you do have to put up with an awful lot of really gross violence um, but the Bible is so similar to what we're studying in the Hebrew Bible right now. It gives you some pretty um, good visuals for, for what's happening. Anyway, I love you all. Thank you for the super, super discussion. And we'll see you next week.